0: So here we are in the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel. And in this ninth chapter, what we see is that Jesus' uh, Galilean ministry comes to an end. The way the Gospel or Luke tells us is that he turns his face towards Jerusalem. He makes his journey towards Jerusalem. That's where he needs to go, it's where he's got to go. He's going to get over there, regardless of what the consequences are. And the shortest route from Galilee, where Jesus has been doing all his adult ministry, and Jerusalem is to go right through Samaria an area that uh, was the area of the Samaritans. And as you remember from your Bible study, the Samaritans and the Jewish people of that day did not get along very well. As a matter of fact, today they don't get along very well. But the shortest route, not the roundabout wide, was right through Samaria. So you can see that Jesus sends a couple of disciples or friends, whomever is following him, to go into the village of Samaria to prepare a place for them to spend the night. And what comes back is that they don't want him there. He's making his journey to Jerusalem. They don't want pilgrims who are going to Jerusalem. What really divided the two of them, the Samaritans thought that uh, God resided at Mount Gerizim. The Jewish people thought that Mount resided only in Jerusalem. So the two couldn't agree. By the time Ezra and Nehemiah come along, 400 years, 400 years before, they're fighting about this, before Jesus rose alone. For 400-plus years, uh, Truman Capote, Capote once observed that great fury like great whiskey, requires long fermentation. Well, it's been going on for a long, long time, and they hate each other with a passion. So James and John, the two disciples who are with Jesus, when they get the news, when they get the news that they're not going to be welcomed into Samaria, they say to Jesus, Lord, do you bid us to come to bid fire to come down from heaven and consume them Recall James James and John are called the sons of thunder for a specific reason. Most of the time when somebody contradicts them, that's what they want. Bring down thunder upon anybody. And sure enough, they want that. They want to strike back, which is the natural tendency when we've been rejected, humiliated, when we sense that we don't have any justice coming our way. Shakespeare had not yet come along with that line, which I think should be inscribed over every pastoral counseling center, That wonderful line in Act 5, Scene 2, that goes like this, Thou hast not half the power to do me harm as I have to be hurt. Just as all the water in the ocean cannot sink a ship unless it leaks in, so all the rejection and hatred in the world cannot pull you down unless you let that hatred seep into your heart, unless you let it get inside of you. All of us know, and I've said it a million times in this church, that all feelings are valid. Every feeling you have is valid. It is normal to feel envy, hatred, and resentment, which are inevitable responses to rejection, humiliation, or injustice, whether they are real or imagined. Freely to acknowledge hatred and resentment is the best way, I think, to avoid becoming hateful and resentful If you deny your feelings, then just as surely as today is Sunday, you will act them out on somebody else. Hatred is basically pain denied. And pain that is not transformed is transmitted to somebody else. Every time that we have a shooting incident in this country, they usually do a profile, some kind of a profile on the shooter. And one of the things that seems to be a constant on all the all those single shooters that come into our lives, whether in Orlando or anybody else, is that all of them somewhere along felt a sense of humiliation, a sense, sense of injustice, they set, sensed pain. And when it is not transformed, you're going to transmit it to somebody else. The subconscious has no digestive tract. What goes down has to come up, and usually it comes up in the form of displaced violence. The vengeance solution is always don't get mad, get even. The alternative to vengeance is get mad, not even. And all of us know that the price of hating others is loving ourselves the less. Hatred has no place in the hearts of the children of God. That's what Jesus is saying. If God's love is the name of the game, then hate is the wound and the order of our being. I think that it is better by far to have our hearts broken than to have our hearts hardened. Lord, do you want us to bid fire, come down from heaven and consume them? The disciples had yet to appreciate that there is enough fire built into the system and that those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. James Baldwin one time wrote, a terrible and inexorable law that one, can, is, that one cannot deny the humanity of another without diminishing one's own. Respect, reverence from life, I think is where all religions meet and where humanity must always, always go. Isn't that the truth about our lives? So Jesus tells them, no, that's not our way. We're not getting it done that way. And then Luke jumps into the story of the three folks who want to follow Jesus but don't really want to go along. As far as I'm concerned, there are really two powerful injunctions in the gospel. The first one is this, Come to me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the 1928 prayer book, we said that every Sunday. I remember it from heart, growing up with that 1928 prayer book. And I know that there are some of you gathered here who probably remember it from those days, that every Sunday, you cannot, if you're old enough to remember, if you're old enough to remember that injunction, Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's one of the injunctions that Jesus gives gives us. Come unto me. whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever whatever your experiences are, you can come to me. You are going to be accepted. That's what that line is. You are going to be accepted. And your task and my task is always to accept the acceptance. The acceptance is sitting out there. That's the reality of life. Our subjective reality is whether we're going to accept it or not. And every Sunday we were reminded the first injunction is come unto me all ye that travail and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I will love you. You are accepted. Accept your acceptance. That's the promise. Then comes the demand. 22 times in the Gospels we hear these words follow me. That's the demand. Follow me. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, love me. Jesus doesn't say, worship me. Jesus doesn't say, adore me. Jesus doesn't say, give me something. All he says is this, come with me, walk with me, do what I do, learn from me, be close to me, follow me. That's the injunction, follow me, no other one what we learn from this story is that discipleship is a demanding way of life. And I don't know about your life, but I can tell you this about my life. My problem is this, that my vows for reform are fleeting. My faith is shadowed by uncertainties. Most of my commitments evaporate very quickly, My promises are eloquent, but my performance, I want to tell you, is always, always shabby. I think I agree with the Lula Bankhead who one time described herself this way, that she was as pure as a driven slush. (laughs) I sense that about myself. All of us, all of us have some sort of insecurity, don't we? That keeps us from following the Christ to the best of our abilities. I think that if we scratch the smoothest looking surface of any human being, you will uncover a maze of complexities and contradictions, all of which are fed by some form of insecurity. All of us, all of us have some insecurity in our lives, and all of us spend an inordinate amount of time trying to secure ourselves against our insecurities. Paul Tillich, the theologian of the last century, had a great line in his book, The Systematic Theology, and it went like this, anxiety is the finite self aware of infinity. Anxiety is the finite self aware of infinity. And I want to tell you, the older I get, the closer that comes to my heart. That anxiety is the finite self aware of infinity. And it's those insecurities that keep us from acting, acting as disciples. Now, I trust that all of us consider ourselves disciples of the Christ. Now, some of you may be here visiting our congregation today because this is a historic place. Welcome. We're glad to have you here. But I suspect that many of us consider ourselves disciples of the Christ, and that we want to follow the Christ, but it's a hard thing to do. And all three of our uh, disciples want to be disciples, all of them come up with some reason, some insecurity that's driving them not to follow the Christ. And you and I know that there are three things we can do with our insecurities. You can act them out, you can deny them, or you can turn them over to God. It's clear to me which solution spirituality requires. As far as I'm concerned, of these three guys who meet Jesus and want to follow, want to be followers when he calls them to follow, all of them come down to one basic thing, that they want to stay as they are. The last one says, you know, you can't plow and look backwards. Now I have to tell you this, that I've never plowed anything in my life. But I am told this, that you have to keep looking forward to create a straight furrow. And I think that the image that Jesus uses of the plow is a moving image, a fluid image. You have to turn the soil over and over. You can't just think about it. You have to keep walking in the spirit. You have to move along to prepare the ground. Jesus tells us, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then the second injunction is, come and follow me. Jesus accepts us, accepts you. The call is to accept that acceptance and then recognize that Jesus is, Never leaves us where Jesus finds us. Discipleship is not a static state. We are a pilgrim people who have decided never to arrive, never to arrive at our destination, except, of course, when we finally meet God face to face. So much of the time we think we're plowing, but we keep hollering for the good old days. We keep hollering for the good old days when we need to remember that the good old days, not all of them were good. Everybody has had hard days. And that the good old days were good for some, but they were not good for everybody. And that looking backwards will never get us to the destination of seeing God face to face. The purpose, I think, of discipleship is always to look at the present and to look forward. To look to where we're going. To see where God guides us. Looking backwards never helps anything. I think that history and memory are important in our lives. I think to some extent or another they tell us who we are just like our genes tell us who we are. And it's an important component in our life. But you can't let them guide you. Looking backwards cannot be the way of our life. The good old days were good for some, and I want to tell you, they were not good for everybody. And when somebody calls us back to that, they are lying to us. And they're not pointing to a future, the future to which God calls us. Martin Luther King one time wrote that procrastination is a thief of time and we are called to move from indecision to action. And then he continues by saying that our struggle is always unceasing. We never get there, but I want to tell you we don't have the privilege to give up. Our call is always to move forward as Christ calls us never to look backwards, but to plow straight ahead. Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest. That's Jesus' first injunction. You are accepted. Accept that acceptance. And then the demand. Come and follow me. Amen.